Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, January the 10th, 2012, and today is episode 817 of the Survival Podcast. I have kind of a downer topic today. We're going to talk about the debt crisis in America, and we're going to talk about it at the federal, state, municipal, county, city level. And I'm going to tell you why I think that this is something that I don't know exactly how it's going to go down. Uh, but I talked to Mike Gazer, and I'll be playing that interview for you next week while I'm in, in SHOT Show uh, yesterday. And what we could agree on is there's no happy ending. And I want to convince you of that today if you have anything left in you that says that there can be a happy ending to it. Um, not because I want to bring you down, but because I want you to be prepared for it. I want you to understand that not having a happy ending doesn't mean having necessarily a miserable ending. I want to give you some optimism today on for yourself. But it's going to be very hard for me to paint a optimistic economic picture of your country today. And I'm not even going to try to do so because I would just be lying to you and honestly full of crap if I did. Uh, before I get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. If you want to know how to cook seasonally and locally, then Chef Keith Snow is the place to go to find that out. If you want some awesome seasoning mixes, check his stuff out. I'm telling you, the steak seasoning is my favorite out of all of them, but they're all really good. The roast chicken, man, you want to, you know, I'm going to talk about saving some money today here and there. And I'll tell you, you want to save some money, get yourself a good whole chicken. And roast that sucker in the oven. We'll get some of his uh, his chicken seasoning when you do that. Phenomenal. Maybe I'll do a video one day on how I cook chicken. It's simple, but it just comes out amazing. And basically, it's based on the way Chef Keith taught me how to cook a turkey for Thanksgiving. So uh, get on over there, HarvestEating.com. Check out what, what Chef Keith is up to. Next up today, Emergency Essentials. So prepared that their website is named... BePrepared.com. They beat the Boy Scouts to the .com on the Be Prepared thing. People tell me the Boy Scouts actually are at BePrepared.org, but I just think Emergency Essentials got there first because everybody wants a .com. Anyway, if you want long-term storage food, they're one of the best places to go. They also have a great catalog and a great information and resources area as well. So check them out today, Emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com. Remember, the best way to get in touch with all of our sponsors and make sure you're dealing with an actual sponsor that carries my personal endorsement and the overall seal of the Listener uh, listener Ad Council is to go to our website first, thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And uh, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me if you want to through social media. is going to be Facebook on the Facebook fan page. If you send me a friend request individually because you find me, I may or may not accept it. I don't do a lot of that anymore. And I'm going to tell you why, folks. I know a lot of people, you want to be your friend on Facebook, and I get people to send me little notes with it. You know, I'm going to be crushed or whatever. Man, I don't even look at Facebook on the uh, on the personal side. I When I'm on Facebook, I am on the Survival Podcast fan page engaging with you guys. I'm not a big lover of Facebook. I understand it as a marketer and all, but I am there because you're there, not because I like it. 
And I am there because you guys want to be communicated with there, and the place I do that is on the fan page. So you can link to that from the website as well. We do have some new videos coming out. I want to remind you guys, I'm going to be in SHOT Show next week, all week long. Uh, there's probably going to be like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday show type schedule, but I'm going to see if I can do some interviews while I'm out there and maybe get one or two shows up from interviews from SHOT. So uh, maybe shorter, maybe not quite in the format they normally are, but just so we can get some of the information to you about what's going on out there because you have to be media or in the industry to get into SHOT Show. So a lot of you guys, even if you wanted to go, they won't let you in. Uh, I get in as media. Who, who, who would have thunk it that you know five years ago podcasting would be considered media at SHOT Show, but it is now. So that's what capacity I'll be out there in. And as a media contact, hey, one of my jobs is to interview people. I'll be taking a little handheld recorder with a lapel mic, and we'll see if we can get you some information about what's coming in 2012 from some of the major manufacturers. There is a TSP meetup at Tommy Bahamas. I put out a post about it yesterday. If you'd like to come, there'll be a link in today's show notes. It's on Facebook. We need you to RSVP. We're capping it at 60. Right now, it's not a problem. There's only 12 people showing up. If it ends up being 12, 20 people, actually, I'm kind of excited about that. More time, one-on-one -on -one time to talk to each other and talk to you guys. Um, but I'd love to see you there. I want to be clear, though, because I've had some people email me about this. It is not a SHOT Show event. It is a TSP event that just happens to be going on in Vegas during SHOT Show. You do not have to be attending SHOT Show to come to the dinner, and Tommy Bahamas is supposed to be an awesome place. Sis Wolf from the Gear Shop set that up, and I'm looking forward to meeting you guys there. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll be getting, uh, you'll be helping support the show at 20 cents an episode. So when you get done listening to the show, if you think that's worth two dimes, consider joining the member support brigade. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service. Email me prior to joining, and I will email you back a special discount code uh, that will give you a special price in recognition for your national service. Uh, I do get emails once in a while, so this is the third time, and I email you back. I'm like, this is the third time I answered you, too. I want you guys to realize that whenever you get an email from someone that says words like discount in it, there's a high propensity for it to go where? Your spam folder. So check your spam folders. If you'd email me and you haven't heard back in a day or two on a discount, I'm in my email every day, and uh, I answer those things, man, just as quickly as I can. If you email me late afternoon, I'll probably respond to you in the morning versus that day. If you email me anytime before about one o'clock. Generally, I get those back uh, within an hour of receipt. With that, we've got the housekeeping knocked out. Let's go ahead and uh, get into our main topic today. Again, I know this is kind of a downer topic, but man, I want you guys motivated. I want you really, really motivated to prepare. And I want you to prepare in a different way than most people in this industry tell you to. I want you to pre prepare spiritually, emotionally, and physically for society to go through a massive shift and for the American reality to absolutely change. I'm not trying to get you ready for Mad Max, okay? I'm not trying to get you ready for Patriot to come and collapse. I think those scenarios are a bit out there. But I think scenarios like what's going on in Argentina and what Fairfowl, Fernando has told us about in Argentina are highly likely and worse to occur in this country, both on the economic side and on the danger side. But I want to focus on the economic side today because the economic side is the driver of things. One thing I really need to explain to you before I... I've got a, a, a video segment that I just have the audio for you, obviously, on the show here. That's about somewhere under 10 minutes long, 8 minutes long, something like that, called 30 Signs the Middle Class is Dying. 
Before I play it for you, though, and I, instead of reading the report, I'm going to play it for you because this British guy from some radio station or something like this has a great voice, and you probably enjoy listening to him, and it's already been done, and it's on YouTube, and I'll link to it. But you're going to hear him say something along the lines of, the middle class is dying, and of course taking the rest of the nation with them. If I don't preface that, you could take that the wrong way, like it's our fault, it's the middle class that we're going down. No, the reason that we're going down is because the middle class is the backbone of a nation's economy. The middle class is like the privates and specialists in the army. They're not in charge of most things. But they run everything. They drive everything. They're the backbone of everything. There's more of them than anybody else. It might be the sergeants and the lieutenants and the captains that shout orders. And it might be the first sergeants and the colonels and, and above that handle the administration and make top-level decisions. But without your privates and your specialists and your, your, your lower enlisted NCOs, nothing at all could ever happen. No wars could be fought. No logistics could be handled. Nothing could be done. That is the middle class in both their activity and their production and their spending. That's what the middle class of a nation is. A middle class of a nation is not really set on a fixed number. And this is the problem. The middle class isn't dying. This is more along the lines of the downward class migration I've been talking about. What middle class means is what's going to change. Again, a shift. So middle class in this country has met two cars, really nice house, good school district, right? Um, membership at maybe one of the smaller, moderate, you know, you, you see your upper affluent level, upper, super upper middle class affluent layers that were at the really nice country club, but well, maybe a membership at the local, you know, kind of every boy's, every guy's country club, uh, activities for the kids, uh, full refrigerator all the time. When you need something, if you really need it, you just kind of buy it, you take on some debt, but it's a, that's what middle class has meant. Now, what is lower middle class meant? Lower middle class has meant money and bills not quite meeting at the end of the month. Maybe being on some level of government assistance through one channel but still having an income. Okay, So maybe dad's laid off and unemployed but mom still has a job. Or maybe dad is disabled and on disability and mom has a job. And dad can't get a job because he'll lose his disability. He can't make as much, so he's kind of stuck there. The lower middle class has been in this that kind of mode where people, when it's time to spend 50 extra bucks this month, and you can't just say, I want it, so I'm going to do it, you're lower middle class, as long as all the rest of the bills are paid. Well, middle class is going to become that. And I call it downward class migration, but the reality is the middle class is the vast majority of working people. That's the middle class. It doesn't matter how they live. In 1950, let's say 1940, the middle class had a lot less than the middle class of 2005. But they were still the middle class. Do you understand what I'm saying? And those people are necessary for a nation. And the nation can do no better than that group of people. They are the slowest man in the formation. Not really... Not really, because they do more than the non-productive and the elite. But their health is the health of everyone. So what happens when the middle class really begins to decay and die in a nation is the elite, the upper level of fluid. So make sure you understand there's like this huge stratification layer when we start talking about people that are wealthy. We look at some people, and we look at a person, let's say, that makes... Uh, four or five hundred thousand dollars a year. Guy's a multimillionaire. He's been saving money for ten, twenty years. He's worth four or five million dollars. And, uh, we call him rich. He's not hurting. 
Uh, his life is pretty good. My life is pretty good. His life is a lot better than mine. Really is. He could probably put some very conservative things together and live a basic, happy, decent lifestyle for the rest of his life, never working again. But he's probably, if he got to that level, he's not the kind of person to do that. He's going to keep working. But that that person can't just do whatever they want whenever they want without worrying about it. You're looking at somebody with a net worth of about $50 million there. And that's your upper tier affluent. You're rich. You're elites. These are the people who are worth several hundred million to several billion dollars. Those people from the upper affluent to, to that, that, that elite layer, when the middle class in a nation dies, they go to a new nation or a new area And that's where they, that's where they occupy themselves. Now, it doesn't mean that they necessarily physically move. They move their operations there. They probably have a place to live there. But when you're worth a couple hundred million, you live wherever you feel like today. And tomorrow it might be somewhere else. You sell your yacht here. You live in your vacation home there. When you're not there, some management company rents it out for you to some other elite asshole. And that's how those people live. Those people are moving to the east. Right? They are going to China. They are going to Malaysia. They are going to Sri Lanka. They are going to Thailand. They are going to the Philippines. They are going there because that's the developing sector. That's where there is, instead of a dying middle class, an emerging middle class. This does not mean that their middle class is better off than ours is. Ours is much better off than theirs is right now. In most instances, not... I mean, in Malaysia, I you, those guys have a pretty high standard of living in Malaysia. They really do. Um, they live in a more dense density, you know, centric. Like, wouldn't be happy there. But if you grew up in it, as far as the quality of life and the things that you have and things, they have a pretty solid quality of life. When you go to China and India, the middle class there does not live with the opulence the middle class in the United States does. They're not going there because the middle class is better off. They're going there because of the trajectory. Those emerging economies have a middle class that's on the way up. And they can go through tons of misery and still get better so they still stay motivated and they're still willing to do stuff. They're still going to work hard the way that our grandparents were. Where we have come to this layer where we're in decline, so any decline is massive for us. And as this decouples, it starts to decouple from the rest of the country. I want to stop there. I want to go ahead and play this guy. I can't remember his name, uh, but I'll be right back after uh, I play this. And again, this is 30 Signs. The middle class is dying. Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. January the 8th, 2012. And uh, here is 30 Signs. This is from Zero Hedge. 30 signs that the middle class in America is going the way of the dodo and, as is usually the case with the middle class, taking the rest of society with it. Today, only 55.3% of all Americans between the ages of 16 and 29 have jobs. And, of course, some of those are shuffling papers in the way of the free market in the form of government bureaucracies. This is number two. In the U.S. today, there are 240 million working-age people. Only about 140 million of them are working. A whole lot of dependents. Since the year 2000, the U.S. has lost 10% of its middle class jobs. In the year 2000, about 72 million. Now they're about 65. Number five, according to the NYT, 100 million Americans are leaving, either living in poverty or in the fretful zone just above it. According to that same article, this is number six, 34% of all elderly Americans are living in poverty or near poverty, and, uh, near poverty, and 39% of all children in America are living in poverty or near poverty, to which I would add almost 60% of American children are growing up without a two-parent household. 
That is not good. Number seven, in 1984, the median net worth of households led by someone 65 and older was 10 times larger than the median net worth of households led by someone 35 or younger. Today, it's 47 times larger than the median net worth of households led by someone 35 or younger. They have gotten almost five times richer, the elderly. At the same time, of course, there's increasing poverty among the elderly. That's, of course, the missing of the middle class, right? Number eight, since the year 2000, incomes by, uh, US household, for U.S. households led by someone between the ages of 25 and 34 have fallen by about 12% after you adjust for inflation. That is not good. The total value of household real estate in the U.S. has declined from 27, $22.7 trillion in 2006 to $16.2 trillion today. Most of this wealth has been lost by the middle classes. Number 10, many formerly great manufacturing cities are turning into ghost towns. Since 1950, the population of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania has declined by more than 50%. In Dayton, Ohio, almost 20% of all houses now stand empty. Number 11, since 1971, consumer debt in the United States has increased by a whopping 1,700%. Of course, this is filling in the loss of income, loss of real wages, loss of opportunities, loss of benefits, loss of retirement plans. People are just going into debt to fill in the inevitable decay of a post-socialist economy. Number 12, the number of pages of federal tax rules and regulations has increased by 18,000% since 1913. The wealthy know how to avoid taxes, but most of those in the middle class do not. I as often thought it would be a pretty good defense if you were accused of some, like missing some obvious, some obscure tax payment. Just say, hey, I'll be my own defense. I'm just going to bring in book after book after book of the tax code. Look at the judge and say, are you kidding me? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Does anybody know what's in all these books? No. Don't give me this ridiculous nonsense. Number 13, the number of Americans that fell into poverty, 2.6 million, set a new all-time record last year. And extreme poverty, 6.7%, is at the highest level ever measured in the United States. Number 14, according to one study, between 1969 and 2009, the median wages earned by American men between the ages of 30 and 50 dropped by 27 after you account for inflation between 1969 and 09 dropped by almost 30%. Don't think this doesn't have a lot to do with what's happening to marriage and family stability. According to U.S. Representative Betty Sutton, America has lost an average of 15 manufacturing facilities a day over the last 10 years. During 2010, it got even worse. Last year, an average of 23 manufacturing facilities every single day shut down in the United States. Number 16, back in 1980, less than 30% of all jobs in the U.S. were low-income jobs. Today, more than 40% are low-income jobs. Number 17, most Americans are scratching and clawing and do whatever they can to make a living these days. Half of all American workers now earn $505 or less per week. That would be before taxes. Number 18, food prices continue to rise at a very brisk pace. The price of beef is up 9.8% over the past year. The price of eggs is up 10.2%. And the price of potatoes is up 12% over the past year. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Two-thirds of a grocery cart is like 100 bucks these days. It's nutty. And that's even, I, I try and save and scrimp and coupon like crazy. 19, number 19, electricity bills in the U.S. have risen faster than the overall rate of inflation for five years in a row. Number 21, 
sorry, number 20, the average American household will have spent a staggering $4,155 on gasoline by the end of 2011. Number 21, if inflation was measured the exact same way that it was measured back in 1980, the rate of inflation in the U.S. would be well over 10%. Number 22, if the number of Americans considered to be looking for work was the same today as it was back in 07, the official unemployment rate put out by the U.S. government would be up to 11%. See, don't like reality, just change the numbers. Number 23, according to the student loan debt clock, total student loan debt in the U.S. will surpass the $1 trillion mark at some point in 2012. Most of that debt is owned by members of the middle class. Number 24, incredibly more than one out of every seven Americans is on food stamps and one out of every four U.S. children is on food stamps at this point. Number 25, since Barack Obama took office, the number of Americans on food stamp stamps has increased by $14.3 million. Number 26, in, 22, uh, in, 20, um, in 2010, 42% of all single mothers in the U.S. were on food stamps. Number 27, in 1970, 65% of all Americans lived in middle-class neighborhoods. By 2007, only 44% of all Americans lived in middle-class neighborhoods. Number 28, according to a recent report produced by Pew Charitable Trusts, approximately one out of every three Americans that grew up in a middle-class household has slipped down the income ladder. Number 29, in the U.S. today, the wealthiest 1% of all Americans have a greater net worth than the bottom 90% combined. Number 30, the poorest 50% of all Americans now collectively own just 2.5% of all the wealth in the United States. These are all problems that the expansion of state power was supposed to solve. Right? Remember? Stability, economic stability, prosperity, increasing prosperity, family stability, poverty, dependence, manufacturing problems. Remember? All of the health and safety regulations, all the environmental regulations, see, they were brought in to keep the workers safe. Well, now they're very safe because they don't have any goddamn jobs. The government always overswings. The government always cuts off society at the knees. Violence will never solve these problems. Never, ever, 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 ever solve these problems. And that ship of state is slowly turning around because people are slowly, 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 God help them, beginning to recognize that more state power is not going to solve what massive increases in state power has failed to solve. One more dose of cocaine does not help the cokehead hanging off a bridge. So... Hopefully this will start to turn around. My absolute massive deep and sympathies to everyone out there in middle-class land who is finding themselves slipping down the ever-increasing, ever-tilting, glacial, frozen wall without any crampons. We can turn this thing around. I Hopefully we can start to really begin to make inroads this year, but we first have to put down the gun. Stop waving it around. Stop imagining that more violence, more state power is going to do anything other to make every single thing worse. That's it. Freedom Main Radio Sunday Show. Let's turn it over to the listeners. 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just drop by fdrurl.com forward slash chat for your chance to listen, hector, harangue, complain, whine, ask questions, and occasionally praise the show. So, do we have a caller? Okay, great guy, but I still don't know his name. I think the last name was Molemule. Like, is Stan or Catan? I, I, I really can't understand what he said his name is. And on the uh, YouTube video uh, put out by his uh, Freedom Radio, they don't say who he is, and I didn't have time to look him up. I'll try to look him up, but if, if, if I don't put it in the show notes, somebody wants to email me what this dude's name is, I'd like to actually be nice to him and give him credit for doing a pretty good piece of journalism there. I don't want to go through everything he just said. That's why I let him read it uh, and let you guys listen to that. And I wanted to spread the word because I think what he's doing is pretty cool. 
Um, but I do want to talk about just a few uh, things. And the first one is that 55.3% of people 16 to 29 are not working today. Okay, 16 to 29, that's like the best years of your life. That's where you have a chance to go out and work three jobs if you have to, to make money. And a lot of people do. I did. Not at 16. At 16, I had a job. Uh, from uh, 17 to 21, I was in the Army. But from about 22 uh, till about 26, 27, when I first got into sales, I had a job and I had other part-time jobs. And I took any contract work, anything I could get my hands on. And I worked like crazy. I put in 80, 90, 100 hours a week. Now, do I believe that all of these kids out there in their early 20s want to do that today? No, I don't. What bothers me is the people like me that wanted to can't. And that leads me to my next statistic. Today... We've just heard that people 30, households 35, or households with a leader 35 and older, the median net worth is 47 times greater than a household with a, with a leader who, who, uh, is 35 or younger. So 35 being the delineage point, so you figure a guy 25 to 35 set up a household. He's worth 47 times less than let's say a guy's 45. Now, it, it makes perfect sense that a person in their mid-40s should have a higher net worth than someone in their mid to late 20s or early 30s. That, that makes sense. A lot of people aren't even getting their asses out of college till they're almost 30 years to, old today. Which, If you're in college at 30 and you started at 20, uh, you got a problem, right? If, you, if you're in college at 30 because you decided to go to school late in life and you're working your way through with a job, that's different. But if you've been languishing in college for 10, 10 years, you've got a real problem. Um, but a lot of these people are out there working, and they'll take whatever work they can get. And 47 times is too big of a discrepancy. No, this is not that the elites are worth 47 times. This is a median. This is you, me, and everybody else out there. I guess I'm 40. So I'm either 39 or 40. I don't pay attention to my age anyway. But I'm, I, so I'm about 40. So I'm in this 47% worth more number. That doesn't mean I'm worth 47% more than the average 28-year-old. But that means I'm included in that statistic. And you're included in that statistic. That's the median just based on age. Now, that is a huge discrepancy. And this is what it really tells us. The people in our, our my age group and up, and I'm kind of at the low end of this, but into the baby boomers, the tweeners, the tweeners, by the way, were between the boomers and Gen X, and the, the, the very oldest members of Gen X. We participated in the booms of the 80s and the 90s. We built our skill sets, we got experience, and we're good at what we do. And because of that, many of us have adapted to technology, and when middle-class manufacturing sectors fell off, we still had a skill set and a value in something that we could go present to an employer and get a job and function and work. It's not to say that we're better than anybody else. It's to say we had an opportunity that right now many of our younger people do not have. You see, think about this. My profession is marketing, uh, audio, video, internet, Uh, developing websites, it, 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 you know, not just now as a full-time thing I do for myself, but that's what I did professionally, consulting. But what did I start out doing? I started out packing boxes at 21 years of age when I got out of the military for, for $6 an hour, which was not much over minimum wage at the time. I moved on to kind of a contractor-level job with MCI that anybody could do if they were willing to travel, and it was tough, hard, late-at-night work, 
And then I went into, you know, uh, the cabling infrastructure and basically worked construction work, doing underground cabling installations and putting in cable TV and telephone lines and things like that in the ground using backhoes and trenchers. And that's where I came from. And that eventually led to sales and then sales progressed forward into technology. And this skill set I have started out as trade labor. And that was the opportunity that the 35 pluses had today that's not there. Now, it wasn't great opportunity at my age bracket. Go back to my dad, who's uh, only 19 years older than me. And you realize that he had a tremendous opportunity. He made a wage that inflation-adjusted working overtime as a construction worker is better than a wage a good doctor makes today. Not a high-paid you know, plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills, but a good, solid general practitioner with a good established practice makes less money as far as adjusted for inflation today than my father did working construction in 1972. And this is, this is the issue. This is the death of the middle class. Or this is actually the shift... We talked about, you know, in the, in the past, I've talked about the baby boomers being like a basketball coming through. This huge wad of retirees coming through and adding and getting bigger and bigger. This is like the basketball shifting into reverse. So that the generation of the internet native generation, the people that have never not known a time without the internet, generation Y, the, the younger portion of generation X, they're sitting in this space where their future, if they're middle class, is akin to the quality of life that maybe their great-grandparents had when they were considered middle class. So we've regressed versus progressed in what it means to be middle class. It, they're going to have to struggle. The opportunities are not going to be there for them for a while. There's going to have to be a major shift in society. Another thing I wanted to, to talk to you about from that presentation, tax rules. Since 1913, so all the way until we had a Federal Reserve, we had a certain we had taxes. We had taxes in this country. How do you think they built stuff? How do you think they did stuff? But since they took over, the number of rules and regulations by volume has increased 18,000%. If I'm ever accused of a tax code, I'm going to say, in my defense, I'm going to filibuster, right? I'm going to say, I want to read the entire book that this regulation is in so that it may be taken in proper context. And as I feel in my own defense, I have a right to sit here and read this book to you. I mean, seriously, the guy had a good idea with that. Let's start reading this. Chapter 1, Section 1, Subset 1.1. How long do you think that'll go on before the judge throws you for contempt or whatever? But hey, you might as well try it. But 18,000%, does anybody believe that we really need that. Then, you know, our unemployment rate is supposed to be 9%. They actually say it's double, if we're, if we're honest, about 18%, 20%. But did you hear what the guy said? There are 140 million Americans working in the United States today. Working. There's 240 million Americans of working age. Now, a few of them are fat and happy, don't feel like working. Uh, some of them are on unemployment and things like that. Some of them are on uh, some kind of disability for life, and they consider themselves retired. Uh, you and I are paying for their retirement, but that's how they look at it. And I'm telling you, I know people like that. I know people that are on disability for something that they could get past. You know, they just ended up there. They ended up in the right state where they could get there. And I know I've taught, I'm telling you people I know personally that I see how they can function and what they can do. And I know they actually could hold a job, 
but they view it as I'm retired now. And, and, and that is a drag on the middle class as well because we, somebody has to pay for it. There's no free lunch. But what I want to kind of shift to now is so that you can understand that all of this is, is precipitating and making worse a debt crisis that none of us asked for. That none of us really wanted except we wanted the stuff that came with it. Right? Everybody says we shouldn't have been loaning money people to people that couldn't buy a house. But whenever you knew somebody that was trying to get a mortgage and couldn't, you thought, well, that's not fair. Right? I mean, and maybe you didn't. I know I didn't, but I think a lot of people felt that way. There's a lot of people that are like, man, we need to crack down on illegal immigration until they want to deport somebody they know and they like that person, and all of a sudden, well, it's not fair. So most people were kind of raw-rawing all of this debt and spending. But what people failed to realize, when we look at kind of the municipal debt, which I think is more cancerous right now and more likely to bring the crash than the federal debt, because the federal debt, Whatever we want to say about it, they can keep it going for a lot longer than we think they can because they've already done it. They've already proven they can do it. They can print a crap load of money and they can keep pushing it into circulation. They can sell the rest of the world on the dollar still better than what you have in most instances. Now, they can't do that perpetually forever, but they can keep the balloon in the air longer than somebody like the state of Virginia or the city of Chicago because those people can't print money and they can only get bailed out so many times. The problem that most people have with truly understanding this, though, is they don't understand the structure that, that supports the debt load in the economy and the production of the entire nation. The best way to think of your country is as a corporation. And in some ways, that's really what it is. Your president of the United States is basically your chief executive officer or CEO. In fact, that's what he's considered the CEO of America. And then your, your Senate and your House are kind of like giant boards of directors. And then you have a judiciary committee that examines the legal ramifications of what the company does and justifies it against the existing law, which is supposed to be the Constitution of the United States. That's our bylaws. That's our charter. That's the founding of the corporation that is the United States of America. So what does that make Pennsylvania, Virginia, California, Nevada, Florida, Georgia, Alaska, Hawaii? What does it make the states? Well, it makes the states corporations, too. And they're held within the federal republic, the federal corporation. So basically you have a megacorp known as USA Inc. And within USA Inc. are 50 Arkansas Inc., Alabama Inc., Alaska Inc. Okay, Each one of those is a subcorp held by the megacorp. Now each one of those corps is bigger than most companies in the world. They're huge huge subcorporations. The state of Texas is a massive subcorp. Now, within the state are multiple counties. Each one of those counties is a corporation. In fact, they're, you, they use the word often incorporated. And each one of those counties is a corporation. So there might be 50, 100 counties in a state. There might be more, there might be less. But each one of those counties operates like a subcorporation. And some are very small, very sparsely populated. They're tiny. Economic corporation we're thinking of here, right? And some are massive. Dallas County is a massive subcorporation within the subcorporation of Texas, within the megacorporation of the United States of America. Right? LA County, massive subcorp within the massive corp, within the massive subcorp. You got it? So that's how you have to think about it. Now, each city, therefore, is a corporation held within the county. Okay? 
And then each individual citizen is a little tiny miniature corporation. Now some of the conspiracy theorists will tell you you can prove this, and they're not wrong by this, by the way, at least the first part of it. If you pull out your driver's license and you look at your driver's license, you will see that every letter in your name is capitalized. This is effectively this identification. And if you look at your social security card, it will do the same thing in legalese making you a corporation. So you function as a corporation within the corporation, within the corporation, within the corporation. Corporate greed starts to take on a whole new look now, doesn't it? This is real corporate greed. Everybody's forced into the corporate model. We could go so deep into this today, but we're not going to. I want to stick to what it means to us from a standpoint of how it impacts debt and credit ratings of the United States, the states, the counties, and the cities. Now, let's say that you were a potential investor, a venture capitalist, somebody with several million dollars to just throw the dice on a deal, and you were looking for a good, safe deal. And somebody approached you, and they said, we're Widgets, Inc., and this is our business plan and everything, and here's our financials. And it looked good and solid. But then you saw that within Widgets, Inc., they were holding five other subcorps. And you say, hey, hold on a second. The top-level books look good. But uh, I want to see the books on these other five subcorporations. And as an investor, you know, if they want your money, they got to do that. they got to give you full disclosure. So they give you disclosure on the five subcorporations. And you looked, and each one of those five subcorporations was carrying massive debt. And even though the balance sheet for Widgets, Inc. looks strong, there's no way Widgets, Inc. could cover the total losses by the subcorporations that it owns. How likely would you be to give your investment to Widgets, Inc. when you realize what they're going to do is try to backfill their own debt hole using your money to stay solvent? Huh. Now, so we all worry about the credit rating of the United States of America and what it costs us to borrow money from the Chinese and old lady grandma and the, and the British and everybody else that buys U.S. bonds. And we look at the U.S. debt ceiling, the U.S. spending, the U.S. deficit, and these things are all important. And I'm going to give you some startling facts on them here in a minute. I mean, I think most people remember it was like just yesterday when we owed $12 trillion. What do you hear what we owe now? Um, and that's all true. But what happens to the credit rating of the megacorp, USA Inc., when the subcorps of states like Illinois uh, and Michigan and Alaska start to fold, start to go into insolvency? And megacorp is now throwing money to its subcorps to try to keep them afloat. Let's go down one level. So what happens to the... The, the giant corporation of California when it's subcorporations like Los Angeles and San Francisco and their associated counties begin to, to fail. The creditor, the person actually that would buy the bond and issue the new debt to keep the Ponzi scheme running, starts to look underneath the hood. And the larger corporation's credit status starts to be degraded by the underlying subcorporation. Does that make sense? Well, what's happening to the subcorporations that, that are the cities? Well, there's, there's over a hundred cities, like a, a hair's breadth away from bankruptcy. There's multiple established cities that are currently in uh, receivership to their state. Let me read a couple things to you that are going on right now. Um, 
Judge lets bankrupt U.S. town slash pensions. And this is on uh, U.S. politics and policy on capitalism in crisis. I'll put a link to it today. It's part of the Financial Times, apparently. A federal bankruptcy court has approved an agreement that will allow Central Falls, a bankrupt city in Rhode Island that I told you about over a year ago, by the way, to slash pensions of police and fire retirees while paying its bank holders in full. It's bondholders full. So they're going to cut the retirement pensions and pay the bondholder. Why? To preserve the ability to borrow. To say to the market, your money's safe still here. We will pay our debt. We'll screw our own people before we don't pay you. Okay? The bankruptcy case is being widely watched in the $4 trillion municipal bond market where the U.S. states and cities raise money for public projects as a potential blueprint for other struggling areas, though the town has a population of just 19,000. I want you to think about that. This isn't being watched as a blueprint. How do we fix the problem? Well, we cut retirement pensions. I'm going to tell you why that actually is a very, very bad thing for not just the people getting cut, but for the nation as a whole in a minute. Central Falls filed for bankruptcy last year, but its public bondholders are protected from losses by the new legislation. Rather than challenging the new law, the majority of retired people and firefighters in December accepted a deal that will cut their annual payouts by up to 55%. So you worked for the fire department for 30 years and you were banking on your retirement and now it can be cut by up to half of what you were promised. However, the deal is contingent on the state setting aside at least $2 million to reduce the annual pension reduction of any retiree to 25% for five years to help ease the financial blow. So what happens here is the state, Michigan, uh, uh, puts up a few million dollars and says, okay, you're going to get a half cut, but we're going to only take half of the half cut initially. So this is what you would call a partial state bailout. Cities have generally avoided Chapter 9, the part of the federal bankruptcy code applicable to them, for fear that reneging on public debt obligations would mean higher borrowing costs far into the future. In a move that sidesteps those concerns, Rhode Island last summer, oh, this is Rhode Island, I'm sorry, uh, I'm thinking of another town, uh, passed a controversial legislation that says public debt of cities in the state must be paid first in a bankruptcy. So what Rhode Island said is you can go bankrupt city of anything. But you will damn well pay your debt before you pay your internal cost. And retirement of the lady who worked for 25 years for you is an internal cost. The debt to the external entity is premium. Why would a state do that? You know, if I could play you some Jeopardy music, why would a state say that cities must pay the bondholders first? Because the cities are sub-corporations within the state, and if the cities fall... Then the state's credit rating is downgraded, and it's a cascade up instead of a cascade down. And see, that's my big concern, that we're looking at everybody's worried about a cascade down, the federal debt avalanche coming down. What about the cascade up, the cities to the counties to the states to the Fed? Much more short-term because the state, the city, and the county can't print money like the Fed. And the Fed can only print so much money to bail these out before it becomes overwhelming. Because they have their own problems. Their balance sheet, unlike Widgets Inc., is not solid. The balance sheet of the Fed Inc., you know, United States Inc., is very, very bad. I'll tell you how bad in a second. Let me read you another article to tell you how hard it is to even fix these problems in some cities. Uh, Harrisburg is basically bankrupt. They went bankrupt. The state, being stupid and trying to prevent it, actually forced them into it. Harrisburg mayor rejects city council's budget, calls it reckless and irresponsible. Let me hear you hear what reckless is. 
Early Monday afternoon, Mayor Linda Thompson vetoed City Council's 2012 budget. The mayor's vetoing of the budget is just another in a long line of reasons why the state felt like it had to take over. The state caused this, by the way. The rift between council and the mayor results in little getting done, and now there is no budget for 2012 in Harrisburg. Does that sound familiar to you, that it can't get a ton? In late November, the mayor sent a budget to the city council. City council proceeded to cut $1.2 million in 12 positions and sent it back to the mayor. Does that sound like a draconian cut? $1.2 million and 12 positions to fix a bankrupt city. Doesn't that sound reasonable? It sounds reasonable to me. The mayor has now vetoed it, saying it is reckless and irresponsible. She vetoes it for three reasons. One being that she said it's illegal and violates mandates for third-class cities. If you want to know what a third-class city is, it's not a derogatory statement. It's a city with a population greater than 10,000 and less than 20,000. So it's like a third-world nation. She pointed to cuts in building and housing. So she's saying they're cutting things that legally we are mandated to have. Who mandates that? The federal government. That's where these mandates come from. When you hear the term unfunded federal mandate used in the news and bantered around, here it's home to roost. This mayor is saying you can't cut these positions because we have mandates that these positions be filled even though they have to be internally funded and the person issuing the mandate. So Harrisburg doesn't decide for itself whether or not these are mandatory positions. The federal government has decided so, passed that through the state and made Harrisburg fund them. And then when Harrisburg turns around and says, well, we'll fix this by cutting this shit out, they can't do it. Secondly, she said it is dysfunctional and puts residents at risk by cutting the director of communications. Because we need one of those. Every city needs a director of communications. That's, I mean, you couldn't fuck nonsense. Thirdly, she says it's politically motivated. Yeah, it's politically motivated because these people want to get reelected. They don't want their asses thrown out because they can't balance the books. Because people are pissed this year and debt is on the radar, finally, for the average voter. She says there are people that want her out of office that are behind this. I don't care. You still have to fix the problem. Now, did she say, here's how we can cut it and, and not get rid of these mandated? She said, did she send it back and say, okay, here's my other right? No, no. But here's, here's the reality. This is what these two stories tell us. The way that cities, and therefore the way that counties, and therefore the way that states will fix this, is by cutting unfunded obligations. And I think that's so important to understand. It's one thing to look at debt, but there's a bigger problem out there, and that is unfunded obligations. Unfunded obligations are what the big problem with Medicare and Social Security are all about. It's not paying the bills today. It's simply looking at a simple forecast. How many people will qualify for these programs in the future? What is the growth of people paying into them? None. What is the growth of people going into them and receiving? Heavy. It's not sustainable. There are over in the fed, at the federal level $100 trillion of unfunded obligations between now and 2050. That means that by forecast, the money to pay will not be there. So it's not just the money's not there yet. It's that based on everybody's estimates, when the time comes to pay the bill, the money won't be there and therefore will require debt. Well, let me break it down for you for the cascade up. Every major city in America has unfunded obligations that most likely exceed their current debt load. 
That means they have more debt on the way than their debt exists and they already can't pay their bills. What they'll do to fix this is cut the biggest expense. The biggest expense is not keep, they always say, we need to keep police on the street and we need to have the doors open at the courthouse and <laughs> we, we, if you, if you cut anything, we'll have to think, no, that's not their biggest, their day to day operating expenses aren't their biggest expense. It's building shit that they think will make their city profitable, like sports centers and things like that that they fund with these bonds. And they can stop building that, but they've already built them, they've already incurred the debt for those things. And they, and, and at this point, a lot of cities feel like if we don't build, we're done. We have to do something to bring in business, to bring in tourism. So they're going to keep doing that in limited engagements wherever they can. So what's the big expense that they don't get to decide when and where? The obligation to the retiree, to the pension, the benefits packages to the existing employees, the future retirement of the existing employees. So where will they cut? There. So you say, okay, fine, screw it. So the bureaucrats don't get paid. Do you understand how many people that is? Do you understand what a percentage of the United States population works for either a city, a county, or a state government? Not to mention federal employees. And this is going to happen at all four layers. What happens when we take retirement and cut it by 25 to 50% for people who were going to be sort of okay with the retirement they were promised and don't now? Now we have an aging population in poverty. We have a, a, an aging population of affluent and an aging population of impoverished. Now those old people, let me tell you something about old people with money. There are old people that are tightwads, and you probably know some. But a lot of old people, especially new old people, what I mean by new old people are people that are hitting 55 to 75 now, um, that, that do have decent personal retirement accounts, that did save on their own, that did invest, that did buy, you know, buy low, sell high, that worked hard, that put money away. That extra Social Security money was a lot of extra. That doesn't have a lot of extra money for them. Two, three thousand dollars a month. For many of them, it's highly disposable income. They spend it on themselves. They spend it on their grandchildren. They give their, their adult children money to bail them out of problems. They are a major sector of spending in an economy driven by spending. So even if we balance all the books, if we balance all the books in all the cities and all the states by taking it out of all those retirement accounts and ushering in austerity and cutting back what they're going to get, what happens then to the spending in these states and these cities and these towns and these counties and in our country? The spending drastically decreases and not the reckless spending because they're not going out and buying, you know, Maseratis and they're not going out and buying $60,000 SUVs and they're not going out and they're not going out and buying, you know, big giant houses. Most older folks are moving into smaller homes because they don't need that big home anymore at that point, hoping to harvest some equity out of that big home that they raised the family in and downsize. They're just doing day-to-day -day spending on goods and services and helping out members of their family who are still working and still struggling. Take half of that away in our national economy. There's your Great Depression. Even if we fix the debt crisis. Problem is, I don't think we're going to fix the debt crisis. Let me give you some new numbers. These are up-to-date numbers at the U.S. Debt Clock. Do you remember when the ass clowns were arguing about raising the debt ceiling and it was like 14.1 trillion? Well, that was just yesterday. It's a few months ago. U.S. national debt right now, 15.2 trillion dollars. That means that per citizen. So this is your little baby up to your grandma who's about to kick over. 
We owe $48,636. Your little kid owes that much money. Your little baby that you'll have tomorrow will owe fifty grand by tomorrow. Um, debt per taxpayer, though. What's the debt for people that are actually working and paying taxes? $134,850. If you have a job and you're working and you're paying taxes, that's what you're shouldering right now. Uh, that's a lot of money. The federal spending, how much money is the federal government spending per annum right now? $3.6 trillion and climbing like a skyrocket. U.S. federal deficit, $1.3 trillion. That's the amount our debt is increasing by every year. $1.3 trillion. That's at the federal level. Now, if you go to the debt clock, you can actually at the top see a thing that says state debt clocks. And we can look at every individual state and their contribution to uh, the state level debt. And I'm going to go to a state that everybody thinks is doing so good right now. Rick Perry is, you know, uh, put, putting up how much money the state of Texas has put aside and how he's created all these jobs. And, and Texas is one of the best economies in America right now. I'm not giving credit to Perry, but when he says that, he's right. But what is good? Well, the gross domestic product of the state of Texas uh, is about 1.2 uh, billion dollars. Or I mean, I'm sorry, one point, yeah, one. 1.2 billion, 1 billion 264 million dollars. The debt, the debt <laughs> is uh, 219 billion dollars. Get that, right? 17 percent, 17 percent of the of the uh, of the state of Texas GDP or the GSP, the gross state product is debt. So the state of Texas that's doing so great, that's in better shape than everybody else, is two hundred nineteen billion dollars in debt. Well, here's the thing: um, they're spending faster than they're than they're taking in revenue. Uh, they have about one hundred and sixty one billion in revenue and two hundred and two billion in spending. What does that mean is going to happen to the debt? It's going to continue to go up. Now, this state that's doing so well uh, has a population of twenty five million and almost a million of those are on unemployment. That's not a total unemployed, right? Unemployed means here people that want a job are looking for a job and are active job seekers uh, that are claiming unemployment. Whether they're being paid or not, they're claiming it, right? So they're trying to get paid, or, and they've either been denied or, or what have you. The people that have claimed it and been paid and fall off, they don't count. The people that didn't qualify for unemployment to file for it, that people come out of school and they go try to get a job and they've never worked before, they don't go in. So you're looking at probably just like the United States doubling it to 2 million people without a job in a state of 25 million. Um, how many people in the state of Texas are on food stamps? Four. Point two million, four million two hundred four thousand sixty-three. So that's the state of Texas, and that's a state that's doing good. So let's look at a state that everybody would agree is probably doing poorly. Uh, Michigan. Michigan has a population of nine point nine million, and that population has declined greatly, and it probably actually mitigates a lot of problems because a lot of people left. But they have, uh, what, uh, roughly 40% of the population of, uh, of Texas. They have 447,000 unemployed. Now, you know that's a million, real million, because I've explained unemployment already. They're food stamp recipients in Michigan, a state with 9.9 .9 million people. 1.9 million are on food stamps. 1.9 million out of 9 million. Now, understand that a four-year-old doesn't get food stamps. 
You have to be an adult with kids, then you get food stamps. But you'll count as one, right? Food stamp recipients, 1.9 million. Their debt, are you ready for this? How much just Michigan owes? $76 billion. They take in $67 billion and they spend $84 billion. That means that their debt to GDP ratio is 19%. 19% of what they produce is eaten as debt. That takes away almost 20% of production to debt. Debt per citizen, every citizen in Michigan owes another seven grand in addition to what I told you uh, that we owe at the federal level. The two states, dramatically different if you go to them. When you look at the percentages, Texas has a 17% debt to GDP ratio and, and, and Michigan has a 19. Um, citizens of Michigan owe about $7,000 in debt, uh, per citizen. Citizens in Texas owe $8,600. They owe more. You got 4 million food stampers. So the state that's like killing it as far as economic indicators would go as far as jobs produced and people working and all is actually their underlying cancer is just as bad or worse in some areas than the state of Michigan. The difference for Texas and why they can play the game longer than Michigan is people are going to Texas and leaving Michigan. And this is part of the overall problem that's going to, to, to exasperate these problems and why balancing the books alone won't fix it. As these cities and towns and counties die and the states go after more and more revenue with new taxes and increasing taxes and higher property taxes, people say the hell with it. My city, my state, my county is dying and they want to take more of what I have and give me less. The hell with this. I'm going to go where the skies are blue. Texas, South Dakota. You know, Florida. These are states that they appear to be doing. And Florida, I know, has got this kind of cancer around the edges. But Florida actually has a pretty vibrant economy. Atlanta, Georgia, pretty vibrant economy right now. So they move into these, these metro areas of these states that appear to be doing better. But what does that do to the state they've left behind that's already in the hole? They, they lose all that tax revenue. Well, I'll tell you a secret. It's how the country is supposed to work. But it's supposed to work much, much faster and much, much cleaner because the federal government isn't supposed to be monkeying around with things like federally unfunded mandates, like we learned about with Harrisburg. The federal government is supposed to be very, very small. The state governments do this stuff. And if the states act stupidly, people would move much faster if it wasn't for the federal interference. Just like Boeing saying, okay, enough of the stupidity with the unions in the Northwest. We're going to build a plant in the Carolinas. And the unions in cahoots with the federal government say, no, you can't build that plant there. Now, here's a state that's trying to make a comeback. And a company comes in and hires thousands of workers with good-paying, high-paying jobs. And they're told, no, you can't do it. Let me tell you something. If it was uh, Deutschmark Air that wanted to come in, in, into the Carolinas, so a company based in Berlin would have been able to walk right in and set it up, open arms, welcome by everybody, no problems. But a U.S.-based company can't do that. So what you have is people practicing geographic arbitrage by moving from one state or city or county to another, but you still have the overriding problems of a bloated federal government, so everybody gets hurt and nobody wins. The individual wins very, very short term. Very short term because the problem metastasizes like a cancer going outward. So that's why we can't fix the problem by balancing the, the, the budget or the books or anything, even at the state and city and county levels. It's too late. The plug has been pulled. It's already happened. 
The disaster is in progress. The meltdown is in progress. Now, can we soften the blow if we go out and we cut all of these places wherever we can and we legitimately downsize government from the federal, the state, the county, and the city level? Yes, but we're going to crash the plane. The, the question is, do we crash the plane coming down at a 45-degree angle from 25,000 feet of altitude at cruising speed, or do we crash the plane trying to land it a little bit sideways back down one mile per hour above stall speed and set it down and put the wreckage back together as best we can. Those are our only two choices right now. And most people don't have the stones to bring the plane down in a controlled crash. And because they don't have the stones to do that, they're ensuring the eventual 45-degree angle decline. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one's going to happen because I don't know. And I'm going to tell you that somewhere in between those two scenarios exists reality. And I don't know where on the spectrum we're going to end up. But I know for a fact that as Mike and I were talking yesterday, Mike Gazer and I were talking yesterday, there is no happy ending to this for the nation as a whole. Now, does that not mean there can't be an eventual happy ending? Yeah, but we have to have a really bad event before that happens. We have to, we have to get to a point where things collapse under themselves. They're too big, they're too run away. And the only solution that you have is to be prepared. That's it. You, I can't tell you how to make money on this. I can tell you that if you pay attention, there will be opportunities to make money. And you're going to have to have some real guts to take those steps. And for every winner, there'll be a loser. And you need to understand when you're taking those steps to make money on, on a declining economy that you have probably, even if you make an informed decision, a 60% chance of being wrong. Because you're not supposed to get it right. It's not designed for you to get it right. And, and successful traders in stock markets are wrong 60% of the time. Why do you think you're going to do better than they do? How do successful traders win being right 40% of the time? I'll tell you how they win. They make a lot on their wins and only lose a little bit on their losses. They collar a loss. They say, I'm going to go into this stock and I will not lose anything less, more than 10%. As soon as that stock drops 10%, I have a order sitting there waiting to sell it to stop loss it. And if the, if the stock goes up by 10%, they collar it. They push it up. They go five, they say, I'm going to lock in a 5% gain. I, I'm going to put a, a stop loss five points underneath it right now. And if it moves up to 15% up from the original, they move it five points below that. They lock it at 10%. And they are very, very smart about their exit strategy. So if you're going to get, try to get creative and be a trader, this is the wrong show for you, except that's my advice. You have to mitigate and harness your losses, and you have to lock in your gains when you're doing any kind of trading activity. To me, the only thing that makes sense at this point is to solidify your lifestyle on less money. So even if you have more dollars in the future, they're going to buy less. We, we all know this. The dollar has had a 97 to 97% decline in value in a little over 100 years since 1913. Why would we expect that to reverse course at this time? What has happened, though, is inflation has kept pace with volume. There's been enough growth and new people and new jobs and new ideas and new companies and new everything to keep to be able to keep printing the money and devaluing it and still have enough people moving it around, creating enough velocity in it for it to be somewhat stable. But we're, we've, we've gone past that. The growth of the United States today is next to nothing. I'm talking about the population growth, which means the, the number of people working is in decline. The new people coming in, by the time they're in their 30s, and enough of the baby boomer generation and the, the, the late Gen Xers like me, Right, I guess I'm an early Gen X, or however you want to put that. The older Gen Xers like me 
exit the system and make room for them, they're not going to have experience. They're not going to know what the hell they're doing. They don't have this industrial manufacturing trade level base of skills to, to kind of cut their teeth on. And most of them are so arrogant because they've been told they're so precious for so long. They don't think they have to. They don't want to do that. They come out of college like, I don't want to go do that. I don't want to go pull cable into a roof. And even if they did, there's no job for them to do it. So the only thing we can do is look at our lifestyles today and say, how do I maintain this unless? And that's why I teach preparedness. That's why I teach food storage. That's why I teach producing your own food. That's why I teach alternative energy. How to make your energy use more efficient. How to do everything you can to live a really great life. And then if all, if I'm wrong about all of this, and I just, I'm sorry, I just don't see how I am. I've paid too close attention for too long, and while I can't tell you what the collapse looks like, and I can tell you it probably doesn't look like the extreme versions, I can tell you there will be one. There has to be one. Mathematically, it is completely and totally possible to avoid. If we add up all the money that everybody owes, and we add up all the money that exists, there's more debt than money. I didn't even go into the derivatives. The, the high-velocity trades. Uh, I didn't go into the commingling of money and assets today. These are all massively aggravating circumstances to the easy-to-understand underlying problem. Debt exceeds money. And not just the way that money... I've talked about the way money is created and all money is debt. Not just in that way. Even when we break it down to its component parts, and even if we look at forecasted growth, debt exceeds money. How can you repay a debt? How can you be debt-free... When there's not enough money to pay the debt you owe. It's impossible. And how long can you run a Ponzi scheme? Well, it depends. How many investors can you bring in? Do you understand if Bernie Madoff hadn't run into the financial crisis, he'd probably still be operating today and people would still think he's a great guy and he wouldn't be dead, you know, I mean, to the world? Do you understand? I mean, you, you get that? I mean, this is the reality. This kid would have took over and kept doing it. That Ponzi scheme ran as long as the market underlying it was sufficient to sustain it and as long as people were willing to keep putting money in. When time, hard times came and people started saying, give me my money, that's when the Ponzi scheme fell apart. Hard times are coming and people are going to start asking for their money. And the way people start asking for their money in this economy with this type of debt is by reaching retirement age, retiring and saying, now give me the retirement plan that was promised to me 30 years ago, when I agreed to do a job in the public sector making 30% less than I could have made in the private sector, give me the retirement that I was promised when I stayed here for 30 years and turned down job offers elsewhere. Give me the retirement that I worked for. Give me the retirement that I contributed to. Give me the retirement that my group negotiated for. Give me the retirement that you've been talking about for 30 years and I've stayed here to earn. That's how they say give me my money. And when the money ain't there, you get what Central Falls did. You get a state saying, you will, thou shalt pay thy debt first. And then guess who's holding the short straw? The retiree. And like I said, you can say the guy just held down a desk. He didn't do anything. I don't care. I'm telling you in that sector, there are wonderful, hardworking people that have earned everything that they were promised. There's kind of the middle of the road people that are the majority in any sector that did a decent, okay job and were valuable and were there. And there's a complete lethargic slug. And inside of government bureaucracies, that number is much larger than the private sector. Because it is much easier for me to liquidate a slug working in my private company than you to do it as a bureaucrat, but there's, that's a minority anyway. 
But even the slug spent money when they received their retirement. Even the slug contributed to the ongoing growth of the economy in the past because the money came in. Even the slug, while they were working, was able to take the money and spend it, take the money and bail out their kids that are 20 years younger than them and just getting started. And all of that's being cut. And we're already in the middle of a recession. The recovery is nothing but a PR campaign and a recovery of corporate profits, not individual incomes. The reason the disparity exists is because exactly what I told you was going to happen has happened. The biggest corporations in the world got rid of the people that they didn't need, leaned out all their expenses, improved their operational revenue, increased product cost along with underlying commodity cost, sold it back into a market still fueled by debt, and are making more money than they ever have before with less expenses than they ever have before, and paying less taxes than they ever have paid before. Because they know how to work the tax system, and we will never tax them. We will never tax them. We will never tax them. I don't care if you elect a Marxist socialist or a complete whack job libertarian that makes Ron Paul look like a socialist. I don't care who those people will never pay taxes in the current system because they control the system and they have people who are paid to simply make the revenue turn into expense on paper. And taxing them isn't a solution. What's the solution? Cutting it for everybody, but I'm not here to talk to you about that today. None of the solutions are going to happen. None of the ideas that I have that can actually fix this problem are going to happen. Not wholesale. Not enough to solve it. The plane's coming down. You have to brace for crash. And the way you brace for crash today is you look at your six primary survival needs. I always say five, but I'm going to go ahead and start adding sanitation as one of them. Sanitation, food, water, shelter, energy, and security. You look at those and you say, how can I put permanent systems in my life to take some portion of those over for myself so that I am not required to pay for them anymore a la carte? And some you're going to pay for. Security, you're going to pay taxes for security, whether you need the security or not. But you need to provide your own because when you're in a place where you have food, shelter, water, and energy, some people are going to want what you have. And you need to worry about sanitation because you can't depend on systems to continue to function the way that they are. And there's a certain level of social responsibility that goes along with that as well. But that's where you need to be today, folks. You need to be in preparedness, not because the shock troops are going to come get you. If I get one more email about being locked in a FEMA camp, I swear to God I'm probably going to track the person that sent it to me down. I'm going to come to your house, I'm going to knock on your door, and when you open your door, I'm going to hit you in the face with a rainbow trout, a freshly caught rainbow trout, about 16 inches long, held by the tail. I'm just going to smack you with a fish. Because that's what you deserve. You're not thinking if you're worried about that. What you need to be thinking about is the complete erosion of what it's meant to be a middle class citizen of the United States of America. Because the United States of America, folks, is USA Inc. And it is functionally bankrupt. And it is made up of 50 subcorporations which are functionally bankrupt. And they are made up of multiple subcorps in the forms of counties and townships and cities and villages, most of which are functionally bankrupt. And it is only a matter of time before functionally bankrupt becomes actively bankrupt. And when that happens, your fellow citizens are the ones that are, are going to get cut first. And it's a massive decline to the entire economy of the United States that has been built on those people having income based on taxation that ain't going to be there anymore. And as more and more people become unemployed, they come out of the tax base and there's only so much to rape and pillage from the co in the coffers of government from the private citizen, from the producer to give to the consumer. And the timeline 
could be next year, it could be 2018, it could be anywhere in the middle, and I could be completely wrong, it could be longer, but that's the result we're headed for. And any economist worth the salt in his blood could run the numbers and tell you that is the only course that we can possibly be on given the current choices and decisions by our government. And you ask me, or let me ask you, do you think any of them have the guts to change it? I don't think they do. I'm not waiting on them. I'm preparing my life to be more solidified and ready. I suggest you do the same. Build a business. I don't care how dark this seems. Build a business for yourself. Build a home for yourself. Build a homestead for yourself. Pay off your debt. Get yourself as solid as possible. If you do that, this is not the end. This is a shift. And let me tell you what's going to happen after this shift. Some of the greatest achievements of mankind are going to happen. Some of the greatest growth you've ever seen. It will be morning in America again someday. But we're gonna we're not into the darkness yet. The darkness must come first. Be prepared for it, and you'll be prepared to come out on the other side doing even better than you are now, not worse. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you